You're listening to the Bottom Line podcast where those living with or beyond bowel cancer, as well as health professionals involved in bowel cancer treatment and care, share their inspirational stories and lived experiences with host and bowel cancer survivor, Stephanie. This episode of the Bottom Line podcast, we'll be talking bowel cancer treatment options with medical oncologist, Associate Professor Jeannie Tai. Associate Professor Tai's biography is extensive and put in really simple terms, is inspiring. Leading research trials to help bowel cancer patients live longer and more sustainable lives. She's currently the trials lead at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne, evaluating new treatment for patients with bowel cancer. Is Senior Research Fellow in Personalised Oncology Division at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research, along with holding numerous other positions on national and global committees. Associate Professor Jeannie Tai, we are so extremely grateful to have you on the Bottom Line podcast today. Welcome. Thank you. That's a very generous introduction, Stephanie. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. Thank you so much. I know you are an incredibly busy lady. First up, before we get into the nitty gritty, could you just really quickly, in a snapshot, give us a short explanation of what you do on a daily basis? So some will call me a clinician researcher. So I see patients in clinic and I also run or uh, conduct clinical trials. And so some of my patients are on the clinical trials that I conduct. I also do quite a lot of research through my role as a research fellow in um, Walter Eliza Hall. So that involves writing grants, you know, having ideas, run, running protocols for clinical studies and developing new trials that we can um, help our patients. So really combining my, my knowledge as an oncologist, skill set as an oncologist, as well as the research uh, to get that's just my day-to-day life. Jeannie, chemotherapy is obviously what most people know as the main treatment option for all cancers and has been for many decades. However, each cancer has a different type of chemotherapy. What are the most common bowel cancer chemotherapies? So we really have limited chemotherapy options for bowel cancer. So really four different types. So fluoropyrimidine is probably the oldest one for, for bowel cancer and several other uh, cancer types. So it's, it's called fluoropyrimidine. It comes in the form of injection, five of you. Or about 10, 15 years ago, uh, we developed the injection form into an oral tablet called capsadabine. So capsadabine is the oral form of fibrofu, essentially, to so get converted in the body, in the liver, as well as the cancer cells itself into fibrofu. So these are fluoropyrimidine. And the second one is called oxaliplatin, which is a platinum-based chemotherapy. You've had them, Stephanie. I remember that one. <laughs> the side effects of it, which you'll talk about, hopefully. Um, third one is ironotecan. And then the latest um, is a tab- another tablet form of chemotherapy, which is fairly similar to fluoropyrimidine, is called Longserf, which has just uh, been approved several years ago for metastatic bowel cancer. So those are really the four what we call the conventional cytotoxic chemotherapy that we use for bowel cancer. Sometimes there's chemotherapies that are combined. We've heard the word like folfox, 
eerie. <laughs> yeah, correct. Pop up theory. Uh, yes. Why do you combine those? So all these chemotherapy agents work in different ways to stop or disrupt the production of DNA. And so by combining them, we increase the effectiveness of cancer cell kill. But the downside is that the side effect also increases the more we add the chemotherapy agent into a regimen. So we have to be very careful with who we offer it to. Obviously, it depends in the metastatic disease setting, stage four disease. I often look at patients, um, how young they are, how fit they are, what other medical issues they are, and how heavy is their disease burden? What am I trying to achieve for that patient? If they have very low disease burden and don't have a lot of symptoms, then I might just start with something more simple. If someone young and fit has a lot of disease and has pain and I needed fast and quick relief of that symptoms, I need a huge response to treatment, then I'll give them the heavy chemotherapy. So there's a bit of art to it as to what you choose to give a patient. And what would you say is the heavy chemotherapy then? The Fofoxiri is definitely heavy. It's got three drugs combined. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a higher risk to affect the bone marrow. So, you know, immune cells, your platelets, your hemoglobin, all those important cells that helps our immune system and our, um, help bleed, uh, stop bleeding can be affected more. So generally also tiredness and diarrhea. So the more you add to a chemo regimen, the more side effects you will get that's usually the general rule we tend to give more up front and then after maybe six to eight rounds of treatment then we can drop some of the chemotherapy trying to maintain uh, some good quality of life and and also cancer control obviously i think Hopefully, Stephanie, what you had was in the early stage setting, if it more of a prevention. Mm, I was stage three. Yeah, rather than stage four setting where we often can't cure patients or get rid of the cancer completely, so we're making them live longer. So it's important during that time, if we give them more life, we want to also give them good quality of life. It became more and more difficult as each dose happened. Yes, <laughs> yes, definitely cumulative, particularly with the nerve endings, the neuropathy, what we call it, yeah. Beautiful segue, Jimmy, <laughs> because that, for me, I know that was one of the things that I found. Chemo can be incredibly brutal on the body and there are side effects, as you've mentioned, and for me, neuropathy, mouth sores and losing some taste were the three that really affected me and fatigue. Yeah. Is there anything a patient can do to prevent some of these chemo-induced side effects? Yeah, so not a lot to avoid or prevent them. Certainly, so let's start with the neuropathy, which is the oxaliplatin, which is a dreaded side effects, I think, for, for oncologists. I still have it. Yeah. So before maybe before we get into that, just on the uh, topic of dreaded side effects. So you would have gone through six months. The latest research was a huge international effort of over 10,000 patients that we did the study on comparing three months versus six months of that chemotherapy in stage three purely because we want to see whether, you know, we can get away with three months and therefore less neuropathy, these pins and needles and nerve ending numbness for patients. Mm. And in fact, they have shown that, you know, three months is probably just as good as six months. So the, the oxaliplatin is peculiar. So it's coal-induced. 
as you probably learned in the beginning. So you type something cold, you get that pins and needles, and gradually that may over time becoming more permanent numbness. I think that's what we're trying to avoid. But the long-term numbness, that apart from not pushing the chemotherapy for too long, there's actually nothing. I mean, there have been research effort trying to try using those vitamins to try and reduce the numbness. There is actually nothing we can do to help to reduce the numbness and that, that side effects. I think stopping the chemotherapy early is key to prevent long-term toxicity from that point of view and avoiding things that precipitate the, the tingling um, it's one way to to handle that. Yes. The mouth ulcers, we recommend salt or bicarbonate gargle. Um, Peter Mac mouthwash is quite a good one, which is actually available. I mean, most pharmacies, the combination of salt bicarb and some non-steroidals and peppermint oil. But fatigue is, is a difficult one. Uh, we expect some fatigue pretty during the first week of chemo and that would usually improve. Regular exercise is actually good and that will help combat fatigue. Nausea is generally not a big issue. I don't know whether, Stephanie, you had much nausea. We have very good anti-sickness, anti-nausea nowadays we give before and after. So nausea is not a big issue. Taste, though, we we can't do much about the taste change. I'm sorry. I know, but it does come back. It does. The taste, uh, you will get your taste back. Yeah. Have you ever recommended medicinal cannabis to a patient to relieve chemotherapy, induce nausea or vomiting? Not personally. So, in fact, the, the fun trials had a comparison of cannabis compared to just the standard anti-nausea and it's not been shown to be better. So you, you do actually need a special prescribing license for cannabis. And in my institution, we just leave that to our palliative care consultants. So if someone's symptoms so bad that needed expert to manage their symptom, I will usually refer to our palliative care uh, doctors who are very good at managing patient symptoms as related to either the cancer or the treatment. And they can decide, I think they would only use it as a very much a last resort. First line, second line and third line are often discussed for patients with metastatic bowel cancer. What do they mean? It just means how we would sequence the tr different treatment regimen. So, you, you know, if you start someone on a Folfox, you usually what you do is you do three months of treatment, you do a CT scan to check whether it's working, whether it's shrinking the cancer or stabilising it. If it is, you carry on. And you only really stop either for side effects or patients had enough or if the cancer's starting to become resistant or the cancer is growing on the scan despite the chemo. So then you need to think about switching to a different type of chemotherapy. So the Folfox would be what we call first line. When the uh, cancer becomes resistant to Folfox and you switch to a different, the second type of chemotherapy that would be called second line. So it's really first type, the second type and the third type. So we tend to sequence our treatment options based on really patient's response to treatment. Okay, so targeted therapy, what makes a patient suitable? Um, so targeted treatment, I think broadly speaking, it usually means um, if you have any DNA or protein changes that's specific to your cancer type and there is a treatment that's specifically designed to target treatment. For example, in bowel cancer, uh, would be like BRAF mutation. If someone have a BRAF mutation, about 10% of bowel cancer has that. And now they are actually 
drugs, a tablet, uh, drugs that's designed to inhibit the abnormal protein and therefore inhibit the growth of the cancer. So that's what we call target therapy. So it really, it will be depending on the patient's genomic um, profile. So we'll have to test them. So when should a patient's tumour be tested for their biomarkers then? This is probably more relevant for metastatic disease. I would recommend at a time of diagnosis. So there are several targeted treatments or even clinical trials now looking at different DNA mutations and and particular treatment for those DNA mutations that's available. So having knowing what biomarker a patient has when they're at the time of diagnosis will help you plan their treatment um, and start looking at and what would I give the patient a first line, what second line, and what potential trial opportunity they are for that patient. Occasionally, though, there are new mutations and new genetic changes that can emerge during treatment, particularly with targeted therapy. Wow. You can get new things that comes and goes. Yeah. This is what we call selection pressure. And so it may be worth retesting some tumour, but you have to get a fresh biopsy. So you have to get a tumour that has been treated and have been subjected to particular target therapy and they they grow again and get a sample of that tumour to see whether there's some new mutations. It's rare, but we have seen it's been reported that there are new mutations that can happen over time. For a patient that... um may not fall into any of those categories, can they have the testing done themselves at their cost or is that prohibitive? So so for bowel cancer, the government, so Medicare actually do fund a a small number of gene testing, certainly ones that we currently have Medicare-funded target treatment for. For example, anti-EGFR therapy, so cetuximab or panatumumab, so they can be used for patient that doesn't have what we call RAS mutation. So every patient at new diagnosis, they should have uh, RAS mutation testing done. There will be likely BRAF inhibitor drug that will come on Medicare PBS soon. And so when that happens, then the government will fund for BRAF testing as well. Although we tend to do them together nowadays, they're very similar tests, so they just do them both together usually. So those are funded. So every bowel cancer patient should have them done free. Yeah, fantastic. Why is targeted therapy sometimes given with chemotherapy? So because they work differently, once again, it's like the same concept of combining different chemotherapy agents is really trying to improve response rate, improve cancer control, improve the number of patients will shrink the cancer and making them live longer. So that's really ultimately um, what we want for stage four cancer. Are there side effects of targeted therapies and can they be managed like chemo? Yeah, they are, but they're different to chemo side effects. So they generally don't cause too much fatigue or bone marrow suppression, impact on the immune system. Um, so the common target therapy in bowel cancer is your cetuximab panitumumab, they're all called anti-epidermal growth factor receptor antibody. They cause skin rash. Reason being, we have the EGFR itself is actually expression on the skin. So, so skin rash is a very common side effect for this treatment, but they don't cause any other issue, generally speaking. So BRAF target therapy, for example, once again, very well tolerated. They get a bit of fatigue and a bit of nausea. But generally speaking, these target treatments have a better side effect profile. 
than than chemotherapy and most of them are not cumulative so they don't get worse and worse with time will immunotherapy and targeted treatments take over chemotherapy or chemotherapy always have a place and this is more for stage four i think i just probably just speaking of it's a different cancer is different. So melanoma, I think immunotherapy and target therapy is taken over. Mm. Chemotherapy has never worked for it. Yeah. <laughs> but for bowel cancer, chemotherapy actually works really well. So yes, it has side effects, but so far we've tried a lot of immunotherapy in bowel cancer. The majority of bowel cancer by 95% immunotherapy doesn't actually work very well at all. Um, we call bowel cancer a cold cancer. They just... They protect themselves, the cancer cells protect themselves from the immune system so well that the standard immunotherapy that we currently try and use to wake up the immune system and trying to peel away that shield that the cancer cells protect themselves with doesn't seem to work very well. So chemotherapy is still pretty much the mainstay. There are trials looking at combining chemotherapy and immunotherapy, trials looking at target therapy and immunotherapy so i don't think we'll get away with chemotherapy for quite some time it'd be nice nice concept to do that but it still remains the most effective treatment and i see the future being chemo combining with any new treatment that comes along to help each other work better together there is some suggestion that chemotherapy because it's so toxic can actually release you know, protein that then the immune system can come in and then do its work. So that's the theory, although it hasn't been proven as yet. There are many trials trying to look at how we can you know, manipulate the immune system through that way, like COVID. Jenny, how do you deliver the news to patients their cancer has progressed while they're on a treatment? What happens when there are no more treatments available for your patients? Yeah, that's kind of just the bread and butter of what I do, really. Mm. So, so my heart still stinks every time I see a bad scan result. And, well, I don't believe in dwelling on the negative things. That you can't change what you can't change. Mm-hmm. So I often sort of focus on the next line of treatment that I can offer the patient, whether that's standard treatment or, or potential clinical trials, give them some hope about what potential trials are currently out there and what I was thinking for them. Um, even beyond their next line of treatment. And I'm usually pretty honest with my patient about life expectancy and prognosis. Um, It's important to avoid any false expectations and also allow them time to to discuss and plan with their loved ones about their wishes. Their bucket list, you know, the wishes, things they want to do. Yes. Um, And and particularly important during the, when they reach the end of their life because everyone's very different in their values and what they wish and, important for them to what we call advanced care planning, to write that down, to appoint medical care decision maker. Those kind of things are probably best done when they're well yes. and things are going good than when things are not good. And I also introduce uh, the concept of palliative care service and team to my patients relatively early in their treatment journey, not too early because they won't be eligible, but, you know, when they've gone through their second line or in, particularly in their third line of treatment when you really know that they're struggling now with any effective therapy, I would start introducing the concept and refer them. and still linked in with the community care team so that they on their books and are there as a 24-7 support for them if they need them. So and I said, it makes it a, a smoother transition between active treatment to supportive care at the end of the day. 
how do you cope with that? Because you're oh. you're a human and and you deal with this on a on an ongoing basis. <laughs> I wish I, would, I could say it gets easier over time. It gets easier because I I've learned coping mechanism, um, not to dwell on one particular patient because I know. The sadder I get, the less helpful it will be me as a clinician to help my patient. I need to be <laughs> rational and make good decisions. So, yes. so I have a glass of wine and I bury myself in research and hoping that my research and other people's research will help the next patient. That's all we can do. Yes, yes. So in your opinion, what is the next frontier in cancer treatments? I think precision medicine, um, be it using your new biomarker, discovering biomarker that we can target, you know, develop new target treatment and telling us which patient will benefit from certain treatment so you don't expose, overexpose the patient to treatment that's unnecessary. Yes. And that, I think, is the next phase. Um, Obviously, immunotherapy for other cancer types is huge. It really has changed the the paradigm in cancer treatment. And bowel cancer, we're still in its infancy, but we keep trying. (laughs) We, you know, beyond systemic treatment, uh, which is, you know, we're talking about oral chemotherapy, injection, there are other um, progress in surgery, in radiation therapy, for example, um, I've got a trial where I'm trying to combine radiation, surgery, and chemotherapy to try and see whether I can prolong some of the cancer control for my stage four patients. And, and so these are patients with limited number of metastases, not widespread. Let's say they have five or six spots. So I'm hoping I give them some chemo and control the cancer first and then give some really high-dose radiation or microwave therapy plus or minus surgery, uh, try to really ablate these cancer spots and see whether we can, I can actually stop the chemotherapy for a period of time so allow patient to actually have some better quality. Otherwise, they pretty much stage four patients are tied to the chemo chair yes. for a long, long time. So number one, trying to really improve their survival, but also to see whether I can avoid a period of time where they don't have to have chemotherapy. So combining, you know, just thinking outside the square, not just chemo, chemo alone. Is there anything else we can help with? Um, I, I do a lot of liquid biopsy work. What is liquid biopsy? So, yeah, so, so there are different forms. The, the one that I do is called circling tumor DNA. I think that's the one that's probably the most commonly researched or spoken about nowadays. So circling tumor DNA is really uh, these cancer, so cancer release DNA into the circulation and we can actually pick them up from from using tests. Wow. So you can pick out the, uh, in your DNA, in your blood, what is coming from the cancer and what's normal. So you can measure them, uh, the level of that as well. So you can track patients' cancer status um, and the ones I'm working on is really in early stage Let, for example Stephanie if you were to come to me today with stage three bowel cancer currently running a trial where I say well I'm going to test your blood and I'm going to see if you have second tumor DNA if you don't have it I'm going to only give you small number or less chemotherapy you may not need oxalic platinum you only need to do your so you don't have the um, effect of neuropathy and elderly patient, I might not even give them chemo because what we've done so far have shown that if you have no detectable 
DNA after surgery, your risk of cancer recurrence, a relapse is extremely low. You may not benefit from chemo. But if you do have it, then your risk of cancer recurrence is very high. So basically detecting DNA in the circulation after surgery, you should not have any detectable DNA after circulation. It should all be gone. The half-life is two hours, right? So if we do detect it three to four weeks after surgery, that means you still have micrometastatic disease that we can't see. And so you need chemotherapy. So that's, that's really, you know, that's a big passion of mine. And we're running international random uh, uh, trials, trying to see how we can use this blood test to guide adjuvant therapy. Has the pandemic and these rolling lockdowns impacted clinical trials and medical research? Yeah, they have. Indeed, they have negatively impacted on clinical trials and research in many, many aspects. Um, We had to stop trial recruitment completely at the peak of COVID last year. We had to career a lot of the trial drugs. Patients used to come to us, particularly regional patient, interstate patients used to come to us to, for visits, for assessment, and we give them the drug, Epidemac. But during COVID, we have to arrange for a lot of couriering, for drugs to courier out to them. So first cost, uh, we have to bear. A lot of work goes into organising that and the safety, obviously, around mm. you know, occurring trial treatments for patients to have them at home. So a lot of work during COVID went into trying to make sure those patients on study continues on study and still benefit, but to, to manage them safely. And stopping trial recruitment also means no income or less income for the trials unit, which often is already under-resourced or just you know on the balance. So this will impact our future ability to take on more trials. Which will have long-term ramifications, but we can't see the impact yet, but it will have long-term effects. Absolutely. I think as with COVID itself, it will have long-term impact in our community. I think we're only seeing what's short-term currently, but yeah, for sure, which is unfortunately not, not measurable. No, that's exactly, exactly. Can you briefly describe some of the trial leads that you're doing at Peter Mac at the moment? Yeah, so so trial leads really just, it simply means that I oversee the trial portfolio for bowel cancer at Peter Mac. So if a pharmaceutical company wants to do a trial Peter Mac, we we get sent what we call feasibility. So I assess how good the trial is from the scientific point of view and how it will benefit our patient. And, and how that trial will fit in with other trials that we're currently running. What we don't want to do is run trials that compete with the same patient population. So I work with a great team of colleagues who all have different expertise and interests and different biomarkers and different treatment, as well as a team of research nurse and coordinators. So we will all work together and, and we, we assess the trials, but I'm sort of like the gatekeeper of, of, of things when the trials comes to, to Peter Mac. We see a lot of news stories every day around medical research, but many don't actually know the importance of this research. And we've been touching on this today in this podcast until we're faced with it, which is often the case. What is the importance of the work you're doing and how will this benefit everyday Australians? Um, well, maybe I'll start with this two broad different types of research. So there's treatment trials research and then there's more sort of biomarker research. So 
The, I mentioned about the uh, liquid biopsy or the continuous DNA work that I did. So we, we actually worked on it for 10 years before it actually came into clinical trials. So all we did was took tissue and blood from patients, you know, patients like yourself come to clinic, we take blood. They, it was voluntary. They give blood. We don't give the results back to them because what we at that stage trying to explore what what does having ctDNA in your blood mean? So we take the blood, we analyze them, then we follow the patient over time for five years. We collect the clinical data and then we correlate it. So that's your what we call observational type trial, where you're simply collecting samples, collecting data, and then correlate them. And once we know what the importance of these biomarkers are, then we design clinical trial, usually a randomized trial. So a group of patients goes into the experimental arm where they all know the blood test and we'll use the blood test to change therapy. And then you'll have a control arm. So a control group is a group that we manage without the blood test. So one to compare if, if using the blood test to guide treatment is better than not using the blood test from both reducing toxicity of side effects of chemotherapy to improving outcome by giving the right patient the right treatment. And from the patient point of view, they love the idea of being able to personalize their treatment based on the blood test. And also we give the blood test back to them in time. So Australian patient, because of this trial, can access this blood test for free on oh, the wow. trial, which you can, can't actually, um, even if you try and purchase it here in Australia, that is not available. So that's, that's biomarker research. You know, you're going from really more a proof of concept type trial now, you know, running all the way into managing patients. And then you have treatment trials. So those are the ones that I look at new treatment uh, for patients. So novel therapy, targeting BRAF, for example. Um, so those are, we have a raft of those new trials looking at different immunotherapy. So those are treatment trials. So different types of trial we do. And really patient access these trials, the drug for free on the trial. So can you take us through then how you explain to your patients clinical and treatment trial options and the pros and cons of participating in them? And how also can patients, are they reliant on their oncologist to put them forward? How can they access clinical trials? Yeah, I, I usually start off with um, telling them what, standard treatment will look like for them if they don't go on trial and what going on trial means. So what does it add to their standard treatment? So often trials are either comparing the standard treatment plus something else. So really giving them opportunity to um, add another experimental treatment to their standard chemotherapy, for example, or, or it's completely testing a new new drug compared to placebo. So it really depends on which population we're looking at. So I would talk to them about what the, what, what is your standard care and what going on the trial will mean to them and what question we're hoping to answer with the trial, what the trial is trying to achieve. And it depends on the phase of the trial. Some of the trials are very, very early where we don't actually know whether the treatment will work or not. We're really looking at safety signal for a new treatment. Some of these are first time in human. And, and there are some more mature trials where, you know, if they're phase three, so these are much more mature ones, where we already have some data to suggest, okay, 50% of patients will actually, the cancer will shrink. 
So I will talk to them about the phases of trial, what type of trial it is, if there's any data available and or safety or toxicity data available, I'll talk to them about that as well. Regional patient, I think it is a real gap for trials. They have to travel um, a long distance to major centre to, to access a trial. And unfortunately, a lot of trials, because they're sponsored by their trials from pharmaceutical and there's a lot of governance and safety issue, they, they don't like us being able to give the, tr- the drug anywhere else outside of, you know, your, your, your big centre. So that becomes a big issue. We are trying to roll out what we call a teletrial model in different states. Um, there are a lot of barriers to that. Number one, I don't think um, there's sufficient funding. There's a lot of work goes into setting up a teletrial. And the most important thing is pharmaceutical company are, are not, industry are not that supportive of it as yet. I think it's changing. There are some new trials coming through that we're trying to do. So it's, the culture is changing. We keep pushing for it because ultimately it will give them more patients on the trial. We can put more patients. As long as we demonstrate it can be done safely, Eligibility criteria can often rule out clinical trials for patients. What alternatives exist for them to access new treatments? So I guess it would depend on the treatment, what type of treatment we're talking about. Some treatment may be available and used for another cancer type and is available in Australia, um, just not indicated for, let's say, bowel cancer then potentially patient can can self-fund or try and get some compassionate access to it. I think I think having money at this point actually does help. <laughs> so a lot of my patients do self-fund certain treatment, um, either, you know, from personal account or through fundraising. There are various avenues of, of fundraising to try and at least get the first few rounds of treatment. So some pharmaceutical will say if you fund your first three, three rounds of treatment, if it's successful, then we'll fund the rest. Yes. Um, so there are different models that, that can be used. How do people access clinical trials? So I think the first first thing is you, you ask your oncologist. Mm-hmm. But nowadays with internet, <laughs> a bit of research it wouldn't do you any harm. So the Australian New Zealand clinical trials registry is really a good starting point. You can put in some search term for your cancer type and then they will tell you what the trial's about. And that does give you also a summary of the eligibility criteria, the type of population they're looking for. Mm-hmm. And then you can take this to your oncologist and ask, and they usually also list what hospital is doing the trial. Right. Those are important information. Um, yes. you know, number one, obviously you want to uh, look for a hospital within your state. Um, whether they're doing it <laughs> at the moment particularly. And, and then you can ask the oncologist to refer you to the centre that's doing it or ask the oncologist, you know, about this trial, will I be suitable for this trial? Because, you know, often the, the information is not, not quite there for you to know whether you'd be right for the treatment or not. Um, so important to discuss with the oncologist about it. And, and if you're not going, getting anywhere with that, then often these Trials unit, do you have a contact? You can email the trials team or contact the hospital and ask them whether it's it's suitable. Do we need to change our thinking of clinical trials as a last resort when all treatment options have been exhausted to an additional option for when treatment commences? No, I think I think every patient should have the opportunity to participate in clinical trials or research. So so I have 
trials that's in the first line, in the second line, and in the refractory setting where everything's really been tried. So, so we have trials and for patients with new diagnosis where we're combining chemotherapy with um, a new drug, for example. Now, it'd be very difficult and possibly unethical. Ethics will not approve it if you bring a completely new experimental treatment into a trial setting and foregoing standard chemotherapy, which we know works very well. I think that will be difficult. You can combine it with it, with the chemotherapy. That's okay. So, so no, definitely, I think new drugs, particularly when it first get developed, has usually is done in the refractory setting when it's a sort of last resort setting. Um, number one, um, you want to make sure that patients have been treated with standard treatment that's been proven, right? So, therefore, it's only ethical to try them when, when they've failed all standard treatment. As a last resort. Yes, that's right. But if that treatment's been shown to be safe and some there's some uh, signal of activity, then often what we do is we bring it forward, we combine it with chemotherapy or we even do it on its own in the first or second line setting. But under clinical trial, things are very tightly controlled. So we're certainly uh, thinking about that and not just doing clinical trial or in the last sort of as a last resort. What drives you to do the work that you do? And more specifically, why bowel cancer? Well, I think oncology and cancer biology is just fascinating, isn't it? And mm. when, when I, yeah, a researcher, it certainly is very interesting. There's so many different types of cancer, the DNA and the genomics is very interesting. And, and when I finished oncology training, there is only three chemotherapy drugs for bowel cancer. And I just think, you know, and they're fairly toxic. Hmm. Um, and and there's certain treatment that come new treatment that adds only one and a half months survival with so much toxicity and so costly. I was thinking we certainly can do a lot better than that. And every patient handle um, their treatment very differently. They respond very differently. There's so much variation, and we now have the technology to be able to actually look at DNA in such a in depth level. Um, so there's so much we don't know and equally so much opportunity, therefore, for us as clinician and researcher to improve patient outcome. I think that's why I'm so interested in, in research. I, I see so many unanswered questions in the clinic. I try to bring it back into research and allow to try and answer them. Not always successful, but I try. <laughs> and, and, and why bowel cancer? I think it's pretty much serendipity for me um, <laughs> when I finished my training. As, as, with, as most people, opportunities. So, um, uh, when I finished training, um, there was a biomarker lab in bowel cancer. At the time, it's called the Ludwig Institute for Cancer Research, just next to Royal Melbourne Hospital where I trained. And it's a new lab. They're looking for students. Um, free labor yes. <laughs> to do some lab work. And uh, one of my mentors, Josh Desai, who just came back from Boston from overseas, you know, he was interested in BRAF mutation and bowel cancer. He's got a project. He said, I've got this project. Would you like to do this project? And I thought, why not? I've got nothing else better to do. Let's let's do it. And and so so I started my journey with BRAF. This is five or 12, 13 years ago in the lab. 
And now this treatment is just about to be approved by Medicare to treat patients with bowel cancer. So it really truly is is seeing how it grew. It was just discovered at that time um, from then till coming to the clinic. And now we're bringing, so we're talking about the trial so that BRAP trial that will be approved shortly by Medicare, um, that will be in patients where they've exhausted chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. And now we're running a trial. We're combining it with chemotherapy in the first line, new patients. So we're moving slowly. We're moving. Jeannie, finally, I like to ask those that I interview about what they want people to take out from listening. So what would be your takeaways that you want listeners to take today? Yeah, one thing that we haven't really touched upon is really um, bowel cancer screening. I think being aware of the symptoms of bowel cancer and get it checked out or tested early is vitally important. We are seeing an alarming trend of increasing number of colorectal cancer diagnoses in those under 50. Yourself, definitely, you mm-hmm. have experienced that firsthand. And I'll throw in there, it's the biggest cancer killer for people aged 25 to 34. <laughs> That's right. So Australian born after 1990 have doubled the risk of colon cancer, four times the risk of rectal cancer than those born in 1950. So the best chance to cure cancer is by detecting it early. So that's my second message before the cancer cells are spread to other organs. So I would encourage everyone to get screened for the bowel cancer at the age of 50 or earlier, particularly if you have symptoms or you have a family history of bowel cancer. So progress, as we discussed really extensively today, in treatment can only be made through research and clinical trials. So I encourage those who are able to advocate for and contribute to do so. Fantastic. Jeannie, the work that you are doing at Peter Mac is truly amazing. I'm in awe. I often say I just do marketing, but you know, between what you do with research and what we're trying to do raising awareness, I'm really hopeful that we can come together and no person will die from bowel cancer in the future. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jeannie. No, thank you for having me, Stephanie. That was been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Bottom Line podcast. To find out more about bowel cancer or for support or simply to donate, please go to bowelcanceraustralia.org.